Second Samuel chapter 23. Second Samuel chapter 23. For a few moments this evening, I would like to talk to you about David. See some things we can probably learn from his life. But primarily, I want to deal with the well of Bethlehem. Second Samuel 23, beginning with verse 13. And three of the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest time unto the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in a hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he wouldn't drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. The well of Bethlehem. You know, if you look at David's life, you can examine certain principles in it and quickly learn some do's and don'ts, some things we can apply and things we should not apply. Starting with David's anointing. It tells us back in First Samuel chapter 16 that Saul, who had displeased the Lord, had been rejected from leadership. God sends the prophet and tells the people of the town there's going to be a feast up there. And he gets word to Jesse, bring all of your kids, bring your boys. Jesse brings all of his boys, but one. He leaves Jesse, excuse me, David in the field with the sheep. But Samuel comes and stands in front of each of them realizes neither of them have been chosen by God. They finally bring David there. Samuel looks at him. God speaks into his ear. This is the one. And they had to watch as the man of God took the horn of oil and poured that oil on the head of David. Wonder what that must have been like, what they thought when they saw their younger brother being anointed there in verse 13. Well, then in first Samuel 17, following the anointing, we have the battle with Goliath. Because if you're going to be anointed of God and you're going to be touched by God, you can expect there to be battles. And you can see that in verse 34, as Paul, excuse me, David is getting ready to go fight Goliath. He tells his testimony to Saul. Saul said, how are you going to defeat this man? He's been a warrior since his youth and your buddy youth. And David said in first Samuel 17, 34, your servant kept his father's sheep. There came a lion and a bear took a lamb out of the flock. I went after him, smote and delivered him out of his mouth. When he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, smote him and slew him. Your servant slew both the lion and the bear and this circumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. So the principle is simple. If you're going to be anointed by God, if you're going to walk with God, you can expect trouble. 
The devil is going to get in front of you to stop you and try to impede your progress when you're trying to advance the kingdom of God and expand the borders of God. There will be a Goliath that shows up and will be intimidating, but you don't have to be intimidated. All you need is a sling and a few stones. That young man went down into that river and he's reaching in that water into that mud. He said, I know there's a giant killing stone down in here somewhere. And he found the one that he needed and Goliath lost his life. But now that he's defeated Goliath, when we move into chapter 19, then we quickly learn that there are some problems that don't quickly go away like Goliath. Some problems are persistent, like Saul. Saul was the long-term problem of David. You remember the ladies were rejoicing after one of the battles, and they said Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And the scriptures say in verses 9 through 11 that an evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with a javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand. Saul sought to kill him. Wanted to smite him to the wall with a javelin, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence. Now you think about that. This young man comes out of the field. He's a wonderful harp player. He's a psalmist. He's a musician. And he's playing music that the scripture says in past times refreshed the spirit of Saul. That tells you the power and the influence of music. But on this particular occasion, this jealousy got hold to Saul and Saul tried to throw a javelin at him and kill him. Now don't misunderstand me. I've heard people play a few songs before that I wish I could have thrown something at. But this is a little different. This is an anointed man of God and Saul is dealing with jealousy. Now because of Saul and this persistent problem, David ends up on the run for years. And by the time we get to chapter 22, Dave is hiding in the cave of Adullam. Now this is important. Chapter 22, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. David departed and escaped to the cave. And when his brethren and his father's house heard it, they went down to him. And everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, everyone that was discontent, gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. There were about 400 men. Now think of that. You talk about a motley crew. Afflicted by the three D's. Distressed, in debt, and discontent. And these were the ones that he became the captain over and the leader over. But by the time we get to Second Samuel chapter 23, these same individuals have now been transformed into the mighty men of God. Now think about that. They never changed David, but David transformed them. If you run with mighty people, you run with strong people, you'll become strong. You run with people that lack discernment, you run with people that don't know God, you'll be a person that doesn't know God. People that are discontent, not happy. People that are distressed, that means there's more of the devil there than there is of God there. People that are deeply in debt. People that are in a position where they're owing everybody and they feel like they're burdened. Now, in some way or another, all of us came to the Lord like that and have had to experience that. Paul said, I'm a debtor to Christ. 
We're in debt to the king because of what redemption has brought to us. Discontent. You never knew joy until you came to know God. And in his presence, there's fullness of joy. Certainly you were distressed. There were areas in your life where God had to enter in in order to bring peace and wholeness. He did that. This man, David, in 2 Samuel 23, is now in the cave because his son Absalom had tried to take over the kingdom. And this reveals another one of David's problems. He was very interested in disciplining people that were outside of his house, but he did not want to discipline his own family members. He had a son that tried to sexually assault his sister. David didn't do anything. Absalom tried to take over the kingdom. He took over the kingdom, slept with David's wives. David did nothing, just went on the run. But in the end, when Absalom lost his life, Scripture says that David sat down and wept over the death of Absalom more than he wept over the deaths of the soldiers that fought to try to restore him to the throne. And his own general came to him and said, David, don't you understand you're embarrassing us in front of the whole army? David tried to go out into battle against the Philistines and in The previous chapter in verse 21, it says that this man was so weary that the Philistines almost took his life. And they said, that's enough. You're going into the cave of Adullam, into the stronghold, and there you're going to be protected, lest the light of Israel is quenched. Now, that's important. Because we have a tendency to believe that we can fight as we once fought. But David learned that he didn't have the vigor and vitality in his flesh that he once had when he was younger. You know as well as I do, when you get older, your mind is still telling you you're 30 years younger than you were. But when you try to do what you did 30 years ago, then your body quickly reminds you that you're not quite that young. And this is what happened with David. And so that forms the backdrop to everything that occurred in 2 Samuel 23, 13. These mighty men have been listed And now it gives us the illustration of David again in the king in the cave of Adullam. Now, I wonder if when David found himself in this cave one more time, if he thought to himself, how many times will I have to go into this cave? See, there's sometimes you go into a problem. God brings you out of a problem and then you find yourself going right back into it. Then you wonder how many times must I face this giant? How many times do I have to wrestle with this problem? How many times do I have to be in this cave of Adullam? And that is exactly where he was precisely because of the fact he couldn't do the battle himself anymore. Somebody else had to take on the Philistines. Now, the scripture says it was harvest time. Harvest time is a period of war for us and for them. Harvest time was the time of prosperity. It was a time of acquiring the the fruits of the harvest. It's going to be a time of rejoicing. But during this time, it was a time of war because the Philistines wanted to come and rob the Israelites of all of the excess blessing that the Lord had brought to them. So don't ever forget that. Harvest time is always a time for war. 
Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. He sent his disciples two by two to preach the gospel. The moment you begin to attack the kingdom of the devil, I can promise you the adversary is going to have his own Philistine armies to come and try to surround you and attack you. Just as sure as the prophecies of scripture say in the last days, there'll be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's also the concurring prophecy that Paul said in the last days, there'll be a falling away. See, There's always a spiritual attack during harvest time. Anything you ever do for God that God has told you to do, if you tell me that you did it and didn't have a problem, I'm going to tell you God didn't tell you to do it. Because if God opens up his mouth and tells you to do anything, the devil is going to be there to fight you tooth and nail to keep you from progressing in any way. David says, oh, my goodness, here I am one more time in this cave. Last time I was here, I was running from Saul. This time I'm here. It's because of what was going on with Absalom. And how many times have you asked that question? God, I thought you delivered me from this. But David's problem was he ended up in adultery, tried to kill a man. And in the judgment of God, he said, the sword's going to be in your house and produce division. So because of his decisions, he finds himself on the run. Now I'm not telling you that you have sickness and disease or difficulties in your life because of because of some judgment that came from God. We're under the new covenant. But I'm telling you that the adversary will use any decision you make, good or bad, as an opportunity for him to bring a sword into your house. Any way he can get in to produce division in a marriage, division in a church, that's exactly what the devil will do. So David's in this cave, and after he's been there for a long time, he starts remembering the water at the well of Bethlehem. Now, some of you have worked in agriculture, all of us have been hot and thirsty before. But can you remember what that water out of the well tastes like? How cold that was? I mean, what comes out of the faucet isn't near as good as some of that water I've had overseas in different places. I remember one time up in the mountains of Peru, we walked and we were testing some Bible translations with some Indian folks up there. And I was so thirsty. And the man said, well, just up around here, there's going to be a place where they got hot springs and we'll spend the night there. We'll be able to rest in those hot springs. But he said, right next, next to the hot springs, there's cold water. We got there that night. That was some of the best water I ever tasted in my life. But I've been out here before on some of these farmers' property where I've had some of that water coming right up out of that Ogallala Water reservoir up under us. See, that aquifer, beautiful. Can you imagine the memories this man had? He's in the cave now, but he has remembrances during hard times, and that's typically when we begin to think about what we once enjoyed. We think about what it was like when we had the liberty and the freedom to have this living water. This man has a memory of it. Well, I think a memory is a powerful thing. If that's all you got, it's better than not having anything at all, you know. And we have to ask ourselves sometimes three basic questions. What kind of memory have people left for us? Second question, what are we doing to that memory? Third question, what kind of memory are we leaving behind? I think about that. 
the memory of that water. I told you that harvest time was a time of war. Back in the early 50s, a man went to Argentina, believing God told him to go. Argentina had a, a president at that time named Perón. They used to call him a small Hitler. They say this man was mean. He was evil. He hated Christians, hated Americans, loved the communists, would not give Christians any time on television, would not allow them to be on radio, and would not allow their literature to be published in great, in great multitudes around the city. But Tommy Hicks, Tommy Hicks, he believed God told him to go to Argentina. That man of God had the audacity to just show up outside of the president's mansion, talking to the guards and requested to see the president. And can you believe miraculously he ended up with an audience with the president? The president had no idea who this missionary preacher was. He probably thought he was some diplomat or somebody trying to get in there or maybe somebody, some undercover agent trying to get in there, try to get some information. But he let him in. And in the conversation. Brother Tommy Hicks simply said to the president, I'm requesting the use of the largest stadium in this country. I want radio time for free. And I want to be able to put out literature in this country for great gospel crusade meeting. God gave him favor. The president said to Tommy Hicks, you can have whatever you want. Took a stadium with 100,000 people. Packed it out within a few days, preaching the gospel. After some time, they had to move to the largest stadium in Argentina. Over 200,000 people could be seated in that place. No politician could fill it up. The president was unable to fill it up. But this preacher, in just a few weeks, 200,000 people inside. And Time magazine and Life magazine said there were still 200,000 people on the outside. Tommy Hicks set up some big, huge speakers at the top on the on the edge part of the stadium so that the people on the outside could hear. And he preached the gospel. When the word of the Lord was proclaimed at the end of the message, he said to those folks, if you want to become a Christian, raise your hand. He said just about everybody in there raised a hand. He thought to himself, surely they didn't understand what I said. He said, if you if, if if you understood me and you want to become a Christian, raise both hands. They all raised both hands. Well, on this day, it was raining. It was drizzling. It was an open air crusade. There was mud all over the ground. No sand or anything down there. He said, these people cannot be understanding what I'm saying. He said, if you are here and you want to become a Christian, I want you to get out of your seats and get on your knees in that mud and pray to God. They all did. Say the move of God was so sweet during the time that he was there. He said over a hundred people got up out of wheelchairs. Power of God was so strong. Said the vice president of, of Argentina and the vice president of Bolivia came with their families, had daughters and sons that were sick. He said he prayed for them. They were made whole. That means to me that somebody had an experience with God that was real. And I give you my word today that there are people yet alive who were in that meeting back in 1953 and 1954. And they can still remember that. And they probably sit in their churches thinking, oh, God, do it again. See, the memory. They feel like they're in a cave of Adullam right now. They're saying, oh, God, I want to drink from that well of Bethlehem. Well, David's men heard the longing of the king. 
And even though he's king in exile, he's still the king. And they said, well, look, we, we've got to work this out. The king wants water from Bethlehem. The Philistines are on the outside and they're also on the inside. We've got to fight our way through to get the king some water. And that's exactly what they did. Now, that's that's impressive. And it certainly shows you that they lived close enough and were close enough to David and his inner circle to understand the king's desires. Now, I had 32 months working as a Marine security guard in embassies abroad, had two different tours, working with two former secretaries of state, James Baker and Warren Christopher. And I can tell you, when we have these diplomatic luncheons and dinners, the secretaries and the other diplomats always had their assistants that were about six feet away from them standing behind their chairs at these meetings. And all Mr. Baker... Former United States Marine, oorah. Then whenever Mr. Baker would say something like, it sure would be nice to have a cup of coffee. Oh, I'm telling you, folks were running in every direction you can possibly think of to get that man as much coffee as he wanted and needed. So here, David has some mighty men who at one time were distressed and discontent and in debt, but now have been transformed into warriors. This chapter tells us even about a man that went down in, into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion-like man. Talks about another man that stood in a little peat patch and defended it against the Philistines and said, I dare any of you to come on my territory. One by one, he defeated them. And the scripture said, until his hand was tired. These folks were mighty. So this man here, the king, has a desire. These people broke through during harvest time and they went on and brought the king exactly what he desired. Now, the implications of the king's desire meant that it put themselves in harm's way. Sometimes if that's what the king wants, you've got to be willing to take your life in your own hands. Let's not forget Acts chapter 15, verse 26 of Paul and Barnabas. It said these men have hazarded their lives. That's the kind of life Paul lived. He and Barnabas go into difficult spots and preach the gospel. And people died. But then the scripture says in Romans chapter 16 of Priscilla and Aquila, Paul said these people have laid down their necks for the gospel. You know what that means? They stayed with Paul long enough to be discipled, to think that if Paul could do this, so can we. How important is the gospel to you? What have you sacrificed? What have you had to give up? What have you gained in order for the gospel to be promoted? There'll be people that will despise you. Maybe you lost some family members that turned their back on you. Maybe some friends said they didn't want to be around you at all. But you have to understand that this gospel is an offense to the world. Jesus said, nevertheless, it's the power of God. It has to be preached. That last trip I took with my wife over to Kenya, it just still astounds me to think we had that big meeting over their schedule. Had put a lot of resources into that meeting. First night we landed, we went to sleep that night in the hotel. And the very night we were in bed at the precisely the same time we put our head on the pillow. The host pastor up near Uganda heard some noise. The pastor's wife heard some noise out on the front porch. She told her husband, go out there and see what that is. Walked out there, opened up the door, and there was a man, shot him dead, and left his body on the front step. 
First night, we're supposed to have that crusade. What's the devil doing? Trying to stop what it is that we're trying to do. And it isn't just because of me. I'm just telling you, he's trying to stop anybody that's doing anything for God. That's how the adversary is. But these mighty men fought their way through, and the scripture tells us they brought that water back to King David. And that is what is needed. We need people that are willing and able to press their way through and to fight the adversary to make sure the living water is brought back to the king of kings. He has a desire. And if we live close enough to him, we'll read the Bible and then God will be able in times of prayer to take his word and stamp it upon our heart and speak directly to us. He'll speak to you and say, this is what I want you to do. You begin to obey it's going to be spiritual warfare, folks. It's not flesh and blood you're dealing with. I'm telling you, it's princes and powers and rulers of darkness and all that stuff we've got to deal with. But in prayer, God's word comes to us. He's speaking to us. He's talking to us. But we've got to have mighty men that are willing to battle and bring that living water in. Well, if we understand this, then we realize that God is a God of breakthrough. You understand? God's not a God that's sitting up there in heaven. He's nervous. He's not a God of defeat. I said he's a God of breakthrough. He knows about victory. He understands these kinds of things. But with so many people that are living in the cave of Adullam with nothing but a memory of what the living water used to taste like. Where are the men of God? Where are the women of God? Sometimes I pull out some old messages by John Wesley. And I read those sermons and then I'll turn on the public access television and I'll watch the Methodist preachers reading their sermons from headquarters, all of them across America preaching the exact same thing. And I wonder to myself, would John Wesley's sermons even be allowed in the Methodist church? I doubt it. I doubt it. I've read through the book of Galatians, the commentary that Martin Luther wrote on that marvelous book many years ago. I've read many, many editions of his table talks, the discussions he had in his home with his elders talking about the things of God as they recorded them. And I've read those and asked myself when I've been to Lutheran funerals or talked to Lutheran pastors, is there any way a sermon of Martin Luther could ever make it in this church? Go back to the late 1800s and you think about the holiness churches that were born during that time. The Wesleyans, the Nazarenes. You think about the various disciples of Christ, churches of Christ, people who at the time didn't want any kind of religious creed written down in, on paper to describe what they believed. They simply said no creed but the Bible. That's all they said. You asked them what they believed, they handed you a book. You can talk to men in these churches, go hold revivals in men in these churches today, folks. I'm telling you, it's a lost world out there. 120 years ago, when the power of God began to fall in different places in America, just south of us, down there in Wichita, excuse me, Topeka, Parham, and all of those were seeking God and the Spirit of the Lord began to fall. Azusa broke out over there in Los Angeles. Multitudes of people were affected by that. But then those were the founders 
of the assemblies of God, the church of God, the Pentecostal church of God, the four square churches and so on and so forth, church of God in Christ. And I could go on and on. But I'm telling you right now, folks, when we look back at what we had and look at what we have is like we're in the cave of Adullam. And all we've got is a memory of a well that we once drank from. And I've thought plenty of times with my wife, we're riding down the road trying to go to whole revival somewhere. And I thought to myself, honey, if some of them old timers could come back from the grave and look at this church now, what do you think they do? She said they die again. Just fall over dead. How have we done this to the church of God? My grandfather was a holiness Baptist preacher, had a great aunt that was a holiness Pentecostal preacher. That auntie of mine was driven by my dad, who was an unbelieving infidel, taken to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, over and over again. He'd drive his auntie up there to sit in a Catherine Kuhlman meeting. My pastor in Ohio, his mother had a tumor in her belly about the size, make it look like she was pregnant. She was up in the audience, up in the, the bleacher part up there, the upstairs part of the auditorium, said Miss Kuhlman was walking back and forth. My pastor told me this with his own mouth, so I know this happened. He said Kuhlman was walking back and forth. My pastor said he was a little boy. He stopped and pointed up there in the bleacher, said there's a woman up there passing a cancer or a tumor in her stomach right now. And he said his mama looked down and it was passed right. I was all coming down right down her leg on that floor. God totally healed her. She lived another 40 years. Well, my dad wasn't a believer. I said, well, dad, what happened in those meetings when you went to hear Miss Kuhlman? He said, well, I didn't know much about uh, anything she, she was doing. But he said, he, you know, just using his irreligious language, he just said she came out there dressed like a nurse in a long white gown and just out there floating around across the top of the, the stage. And I said, then what happened? He said, then she started, after she talked a little bit about the Holy Spirit, then she, she started pointing at people and then stuff started happening and all of it. I said, well, well, what did you do? He said, well, people were closing their eyes. She said, he said, I kept my eyes open. I wanted to see all them people getting up off them stretchers. One by one, people are getting healed. But folks, I preach for a whole lot of preachers today that were in some of those meetings that sat on the platform with A.A. Allen, people that knew Jack Cole, Gordon Lindsay, and sat in a lot of these other meetings, and all it is now is just a memory. It's a memory. That's all it is. The king said, I wish I had some of that water. Three men stood up and said, if that's what the king wants, that's what the king's going to get. By the time they made it back from that well to the king, bloodied, battered, and bruised. David looked at those men that handed him that leather skin or that cup or whatever they had that water in. He looked at that and he no longer had a desire to drink that water because he said, this is the blood of men who put their lives in jeopardy for me. And when we think about the task that is before us in ministering to Christ and being a Christian in this ungodly world, don't you ever forget that God sees everything you go through and I go through. I'm sure it breaks God's heart. It grieves his spirit to see what's taking place in this world today. 
Yeah. David took that water, said, I, I can't drink this. He poured that out as a sacrifice, as an offering unto God. And that's what our lives are, a poured out sacrifice. So you, you have to understand that when you come to God, it's not about telling people, come add Jesus to who you are. It's about surrendering fully who you are. That's what that means. We come to the Lord as an empty possibility. We don't tell people, come and, and God will help you be the best trumpeter that the world has ever seen. We don't say God will help you be the best businessman on the planet. No, that, that, that's not the key. Playing a horn might very well be the source of your pride. You come to God, God may never let you play that horn again. He may want something else for you. And as we walk with God, then we realize our lives are an empty possibility to be poured out and spilled forth in the name of the Lord. Whatever he wants, he can have because this body belongs to him. He bought it through the blood of his son. We're debtors to him. We are not our own. We've been purchased. This is his body. He can feed it. He can starve it. He can put it in heat. He can put it in cold weather if he wants. It belongs to him. That's the key to all of this. But over and over again, we've got to ask ourselves sometimes, is it merely a memory? Wife and I were preaching a revival in Kansas here years ago. And that meeting was a wonderful, wonderful time. In that church, at the end of the meeting, I was bringing people down in that altar. They were kneeling down praying. And I could just see as I was started that message, you know, they first night they didn't know who I was, so they didn't know what it was going to be like. They heard a little bit about me, but had never been in a meeting with me. And so, you know, people just kind of look at you, try to figure out what is he about? You know, that kind of thing. But the more I preached, I'd see the eyes getting bigger because it's like the sun bursting forth over the horizon for him. By the time we got to the end of that meeting, folks were crying. I watched one by one. They came down in that altar. I'm just laying hands on older people, younger people, praying for them. Man gets up after the meeting, says to me, he said, Brother Darrell, you know, I was raised in a full gospel church here in this town. And uh, he said, married my wife who wasn't full gospel. I came over here, joined her church. He said, they didn't believe in all that stuff my mom and dad believe. But he said, it's been 40 years, 50 years since I've been in a meeting like this. Can't meet. Praying, seeking God. I said to him, I said, well, I'm just glad you're here tonight. You know what he was saying to me when he made that statement to me? It's been that long. What he was saying was, I've been in the cave of a dullum all these years, and all I have is a memory of what that water used to be like. I remember mom and daddy. I remember my grandparents. But all it is is a memory. Now, don't misunderstand me, folks. Like Isaac, we have to redig the wells. If God doesn't give us a new kind of preacher in America, we're going to lose out on a whole lot. See, you, you go to a lot of places in this world and in the larger cities, you can find a lot of different churches, good churches, strong churches. But you come out here to the heartland where we are now. I'm telling you, this thing is falling apart because we have fewer preachers. That can minister on the Holy Spirit because we have fewer preachers that know about the Holy Spirit. 
We have fewer people that preach the Bible is true. We have no convictions in the church because there's no conviction in the church. And since the preacher doesn't believe anything, he can't preach it to the people. And any preacher that gets up here and apologizes about what he believes, he don't believe nothing. Nothing. But whenever God wanted to bring a move of God to a city or a village, all he needed was a man or a woman. That's it. Miriam had revival on the other side of the sea with the ladies as they danced with the timbrels and praised the Lord. She's a woman of God. God used her to inaugurate that move of God on the other side of the sea. But that move of God was preceded by a man of God on the other side of the sea that pulled out the rod of God and held it out over the sea. It parted. What do you have in your hand? Because I've never believed that when it comes to being out here, that this area or this territory is too hard for God. Never. I've always believed God can do great things. And my wife and I have had powerful meetings out here in the heartland telling folks about God. Let's all stand. I, I want to end this service tonight with us all just coming down here, standing around the pulpit. This will kind of be our makeshift offering tonight, altar tonight. And we're just going to stand around here to find us a little song you can put on, baby.